Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Boy, it really is a lot nicer in here than it was the first go-around. This is great. I think it's up to 64 in here right now. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, yeah. And oh, what a sweet blessing to see Bill and Andrea and Kelsey over here. That's like a time warp. Yeah, so good to have you guys with us today. We, we, we just brought some great weather for you, right? Like, you, like you're not used to something way worse. It was like 56 below or something, wasn't it, your place? Yeah. So this is like summer, right? <laughs> All right. Oh, well, hey, church family, let's enjoy the word. Clint has already prayed over our time of worship through the word. So if you'll grab your Bible, let's uh, head for the book of 1 Peter and chapter 2. If you need a Bible, just let us know, and we can sure put one in your hands today. Grab that note page from your bulletin as well. And you're kind of making your way that direction. Church family, have you, ever, have you ever heard of something called Take Your Child to Work Day? Yeah? You familiar with this? I, I think most of us probably are. Take Your Child to Work Day is a nationally recognized day. Always the fourth Thursday of April. This year it'll be on April the 25th. And in companies and in businesses that support it, employees are allowed to bring their children or maybe their relatives to, to join them at work and, and just hang out with them for the day. In fact, there are some companies will, who will also invite uh, children from foster homes and, and uh, shelters, kids who may not be able to be exposed to adults in a skilled professional environment. And, uh, they get, and I think it's just really cool that they would actually do that. One website promoting this day says it this way, it's a big world out there and eventually every child must find their place in it. That's why it's never too soon to start exploring the possibilities, giving kids an up-close glimpse into the working world on this day. It's a good idea. I, I like that idea. Now, probably not envisioned within the scope of Take Your Child to Work Day is this thought. I ran, I ran onto this picture uh, this week, and it was just, it just kind of caught me off guard, and it was too good not to share it with you. But I don't think, when we think about taking your child to work, this is probably not the thought. So we've all heard of a Take Your Child to Work Day, but let me ask you this, church family. Have you ever heard of Take Your God to Work Day? You ever heard of that? No, you haven't. No, you haven't, because that's not a nationally recognized day for us. But it is what the Apostle Peter would like us to consider doing, not just for a day, but every day of our working life, taking God to work with us. Chapter 2, verse 18, 1 Peter. Here's what he writes. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you suffer and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And we will stop right there. This will be the section that we're going to share and unpack together this morning. For the glory of God, for the advance of his cause, for our own good, that we may be doers of the word and not just hearers of it only. We're spending time in this place today. So we are back in our study series called Exiles after a long break over the holidays. We stepped back in last week, and it really felt, at least for me, it felt very good to get back into First Peter. Someone who has not been with us, though, might ask, well, why Exiles? I mean, that's kind of an odd title. Well, it might be, perhaps, until we learn that the Apostle Peter is writing to first century Christians who have been forsaken by their culture, abandoned by their communities and their towns, turned out by their neighbors and even by their families because they have chosen 
to give their lives in simple saving faith to Jesus Christ. They have become Jesus followers. And for this, their culture has turned on them, rejected them, despises them, and is persecuting them, sometimes intensely and sometimes even unto death. The recipients of this letter are spiritual exiles in a hostile culture that wants nothing to do with Jesus. It's why Peter will actually use the word exiles several times in this letter. Interestingly, their culture is where our culture is heading. Our culture is, sadly, growing ever more resistant to the God of the Bible to the Bible as an ultimate source of truth, to the the thought of Jesus saving sinners by his death and his resurrection through faith in him. And so Peter's letter is as current for us living today as it was back then, as practical for us as it was 20 centuries ago. Peter writes to spiritual exiles in any culture, in any time, to encourage them and instruct them and warn them and challenge and equip them to live in a hostile environment. And in chapter 2, which is where we have come in our study together, in chapter 2, midway through the chapter, Peter is thinking evangelism thoughts. He's thinking about every follower of Jesus, no matter what the cultural climate might be, Every follower being personally involved in spreading the good news that any sinner can have a new, forgiven, personal, life-transforming relationship with God through faith in Jesus. In verse 9, here's what he says. But you, you, Christian, in your culture, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's personal treasured possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We spent a whole morning talking about this truth, this verse, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. That's not only our great privilege as a Christian, It's also our duty. It's also our obligation, says Peter, to play our part in making Jesus known to a hostile, spiritually dead and dying world. So how do we do that? How do we do that here at IBC? Well, as we are learning together, not in the way that we might first have expected. For most of us, when we hear the word evangelism, the first thing that comes to our mind is verbally telling someone else about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, appropriating that truth into my life by grace through faith. We proclaim the gospel with our mouths, we think. That's what we think of when we hear the word evangelism. I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. But this is not the first thing that Peter thinks of when he thinks about evangelism. For him, the greatest proof of the presence of Jesus in somebody's life, the greatest evidence of the transforming power of Jesus' cross and his resurrection is found in how we live and then only later in what we say. It's how we live. Now, of course, we do need to be able to talk about Jesus clearly and with passion and with conviction But Peter would say, let your life speak so clearly for Jesus that some will sincerely want to hear what you have to say about him. Live for him first in a powerful, conspicuous way. And then win the opportunity to share him verbally. And that is why following verse 9, Peter takes us into four places where people can see the good news before they ever hear about Jesus. Evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. Peter challenges us to think of evangelism as a, as a way of life and not just as a message that we deliver. So following verse 9, Peter essentially says that we proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us 
as we live out Jesus in four places, four arenas. Our individual, personal lives, that's verses 11 and 12. Our civic life, that's verses 13 to 17. Our vocational life, verses 18 to 20. And in our marriages, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. For Peter, our personal, civic, vocational, and marital lives are where evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism actually happens. Verse 11, just by way of reminder, because this is ground we've been over. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, ah, there's that word, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is, among the unbelieving in your culture that live around you. Keep your conduct among them honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, Peter says, live such a godly personal life that the unbelieving and maybe even the hostile might ask you about your Jesus. As odd as it may sound, church family, evangelism begins here with a transformed life that is evidenced by how we're living it for Jesus Christ. And then Holy Spirit directed, Peter next takes us into the civic arena of our lives, which we looked at last Sunday morning together, that place we called citizenship evangelism. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish or unbelieving people by doing good. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Oh, and honor the emperor. Citizenship evangelism. By being the very best citizens that we can be, respectful and living within the law, even when a law is unjust or, or a ruler is cruel, we might just cause some who are hostile to Christianity or opposed to Jesus to rethink their position as they see the outworking of a life that's being transformed by Christ. Evangelism, again, that doesn't look like Evangelism, citizenship, evangelism. And then Peter says, let me take you into a third life arena where you can proclaim Jesus even though you may never get to say his name. And what arena does the Holy Spirit have in mind this time? Well, it's our workplaces and it's with our workplace relationships. That place in our lives where we spend a huge amount of our life, our energy, our time, our thoughts. Peter says, let's talk vocational evangelism. Now, just as a quick sidebar here for a moment, we have a number of retirees in our church family. And you might think this message really does not apply to you today. All that work stuff, why, that's in the rearview mirror of your life, and you're happy about that thought. But I just want to say, you know, you're in this with us this morning because, you know, virtually every retired person that I know says they are busier now than when they were working. I mean, that's just the consistent theme over all the years here. At IBC, that is the theme. So whatever busyness looks like for you in your retirement, if you are a retired person, extract the truths that we're going to step into in this arena and you apply them to your retired situation, okay? You don't get the day off just because you're retired today. Now, if you take a, a closer look at your note page, I've included there on the front 
not only our text from 1 Peter, but also two other parallel passages, one from Ephesians 6 and the other from Colossians 3. And together, these three passages present a, a powerful Christian work ethic, a, a theology of work, if you will, for every follower of Jesus. And so as we move through Peter's passage, we're going to be pulling from these other places as well. And so I wanted them to be easily accessible to you and put them on your note page for that reason. And then if you were to, if you were with us last time and you flip your note page over, you're going to notice that the flow of Peter's thinking in the section we're looking at this morning, the progression of his thinking in verses 18 to 20 is very similar to what it was last week in verses 13 to 17, making it almost possible for us to take last week's outline and use it again this week. And so there's a lot of similarity. You'll say, wow, this is last week's, this is last week's note page. Well, it's not, but the, the, the progression of thinking is so similar that we can almost use that. And just as he did with citizenship evangelism, so Peter does with vocational evangelism. He begins with a command, as you see it there on your page. Verse 18, servants, be what? Be subject to your masters. Ephesians 6.5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Colossians 3.22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Do you think that there is a consistent theme here? Yes, yes. The command, which is coming from the Holy Spirit through Peter's pen, is as straightforward as any command we will ever get in the Bible. Be subject. And it's the exact same word that Peter used in verse 13 when he said to us, be subject to the government. He used a military term, if you remember. And it, meant, it means to arrange in ranks under a commander. And so maybe the best rendering would be to say, employees, you put yourself in a place of submission under your employer, under your boss. Now someone says, uh, Tim, there's nothing here about employers and employees, about workers and bosses. It says slaves and masters. Well, that's true. So let's talk about this for a moment. When Peter wrote this circular letter in late 64, maybe early 65 AD, nearly all Roman families had servants. They had slaves. Fully one quarter of the entire population of the Roman Empire in the first century were slaves. Some 60 million of them. Not surprisingly, as Christianity spreads, it spreads through all levels of society, including the slave population. But when we see that word slave or servant here, as Peter is using it, I would ask you, don't don't think about American slavery, which is a terrible stain upon the story of our nation. We all acknowledge that. The kind of brutality that, that... was a part of American slavery, was really not in play so much here in the first century context. Generally speaking, it was very different. In fact, the word in verse 18 that Peter uses is not the word for a slave in a field or a slave who is in forced labor, but it's the word for servant in the house. Servant in the house. And so we need to think more along the lines of servants at Downton Abbey, okay? Rather than thinking about uh, a slave in a, in a cotton field in 1860. Yes, these first century servant slaves, they are the property of their owner, but they served in a variety of roles within the house as managers and trained skilled professionals, builders, Farmers, vintners, doctors, nannies, teachers, musicians. And they were really a part of the house. They worked and they were owned, but they were part of the house. 
There were extensive laws that, that had to do with slaves and how they were to be treated. And, of course, not every slave owner obeyed those Roman laws, but they were in place. And so generally, the slave was, was valued and figured prominently in how well Roman society functioned. Wayne Grudem, a well-respected Bible teacher and scholar, says this, There is no current comparable equivalent in the Western world to the servant-master relationship. The workers were legally owned, and they served at the master's purpose and pleasure. In practice, though, in the ancient world, theirs was the equivalent of the employer-employee relationship. And then Grudem adds, this means the application of this text to work and vocation is very appropriate. And we're going to go with that because I, I believe that is accurate as well. So as Peter thinks about his context of slaves and slave owners, we're going to think about our context of, of vocations, our workplaces as platforms for evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. And he begins, as we've already noted, with a command. Employees, put yourself in a place of submission under your employer, under your boss. So what kind of attitude then should accompany this submission that we are called to render? What's the attitude that we go into that with? Well, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all what? With all respect. One version says, Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference. Now that's not vague. That's not gray in, in, in the scriptures. We understand what Peter is calling for here. It's about our attitude towards authority, towards our employer, towards our bosses our attitude towards them. This doesn't mean that we're floor mats that can be walked over all the time, but it does mean that we are continually, constantly, reliably respectful of those who are in authority over us in our workplace. Notice that it says all respect. Circle that word. This includes our words. It includes our responses. It includes our nonverbals our body language, and, and our general demeanor as we go through our workday. Peter would be saying that our boss should get the sense from us that we are on his or her team and we are 100% committed. No defiance, no rudeness, no belittling, no talking behind the back, no sarcastic comments about our bosses, no rolling of the eyes when they're, we're told to do something. You know, if we've been in the work world for very long, we've seen attitudes that are far, far from respectful, right? We all know what that looks like. In some workplaces, it might even be expected that there will be a tension and a pushback from employees towards management, from management towards employees. It's a fallen world, and we know that, and it plays by fallen rules much of the time. But even here, Peter would say, the Christian does it differently. They work differently. Here is where we should be challenged by the fact that Peter is writing to owned slaves, people who are owned, and he tells them to respect their masters. In that time and culture, you didn't just leave your job when you didn't like the boss or the way he treated you. That didn't happen. You were owned. If you walked away and you said, I'm out of here, well, that master could, by law, take your life because you are a runaway slave. Do you remember a New Testament slave by the name of Onesimus? Do you remember him? Yeah? He ran away from his owner. His owner's name was Philemon. And he ran to the city of Rome, and he ran right into, providentially, the apostle Paul. And Paul leads him to faith in Jesus. It's a wonderful story. What happens when Onesimus, a slave, comes to faith in Jesus? Well, Peter 
sends him right back to his master, right back to Philemon. He says, Onesimus, you're a Christian. Go back to the man who owns you and serve him with all of your heart. And then he sends Onesimus back with a letter that has actually become part of of, of our our Bibles, the wonderful little one-chapter book of Philemon. And to Philemon, Paul says, who was a Christian, accept Onesimus back. He's become a Christian. I send him back with, with love. And if he owes you anything, if you've suffered any loss because he ran away, well, put that on my account. I'll pay for that. Just a beautiful little story, one chapter long. So what was Paul doing? Well, he was upholding this this truth that the slave was to submit to his owner, even though the owner and the slave are both brothers in Jesus. There was an order that needed to be observed and recognized. So Paul effectively affirms what Peter's saying. Respectfully submit so that your boss gets the sense from you that you're on his or her team. And they never doubt that. They never wonder about you. And what if you're the boss? What if you're the boss over employees, as some of you in this room are? What about you? What's what's your attitude supposed to be here? Well, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, speak directly to you. Masters, do the same to them. In other words, respect those that you are over and stop your threatening, knowing that he, the Lord, who is both their master and yours, is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. It's pretty clear. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Colossians 4.1. As a Jesus-professing boss, then, you make sure that those who answer to you are treated the way that you'd want to be treated by them with honor and respect, and that they know that you are aware that you have a boss with a capital B who is over you. In fact, he's the boss of the universe, right? And he's your boss. And you want to make sure your employees know that you know that your boss is God. Brother, sister, let's ask ourselves a couple questions. Does my boss, right now you could answer this. If you're in the workforce today, you could answer this. You can respond to this. Does my, my boss sense from me my respect for his or her position over me? Do they know that I'm on their team? A hundred percent. And do those who answer to me as boss do they know that i respect and value them and that i am seeking to treat them well in every way that i can do they know that in this way says peter we may get to turn the workplace that we're in into a pulpit without ever saying jesus name evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism Now, I think I might have heard somebody mumbling, going, hmm, I don't know about this. Someone says, yes, you did hear mumbling, Tim. You don't know the terrible boss I have. Mean-spirited, self-serving, unethical, even cruel at times. He's awful. She's a slave driver. I'll show them respect when they start acting respectable. Did I hear somebody say that? That's being honest. I will say that. But that does bring us then to the third point there on your note page, the reach. The reach of this command. The reach of vocational evangelism. How far am I expected to take my respectful submission when I'm at work? Verse 18. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the what? To the unjust boss. Now let me guess. Somebody wishes that wasn't there. (laughs) And, And just keeping it real here for us, we in our modern American workplace we just need to remember that we have, we have immensely more opportunities and, and we are protected in our jobs in ways that a first century Roman slave could never even have dreamed about. And yet this is what the Holy Spirit's word is to them. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust, be respectful and submissive. You know, it's usually easy to respect a boss over us that is good and gentle. That's typically not hard. It's often a a pleasure to work for such a boss, even a joy. And how thankful we should be to God if we are blessed to have bosses whose management style and actions look like that. If you're in that kind of a workplace, how blessed you are if that's your boss. They're reasonable, they're fair, they're generous, they listen, they're kind. They'll even admit it when they're wrong. If you've got that, wow, you're blessed. You should be thankful. But the real test of our faith and our obedience to this passage comes when we, when we have the opposite, right? When it's, when it's not like that. A boss who is, as Peter says, unjust. His word choice here is really interesting. He uses the word scolios. Scolios. Now, now, have you ever heard that word used in another way? Have you ever heard of scoliosis? What's scoliosis? That's curvature of the spine, isn't it? That, that, that has to do with a condition where the spine becomes twisted and, 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 and curved. Well, that's this word. That's where we get this word. It means bent or crooked or curved. And in this context, as Peter uses it, it means unfair, unreasonable, harsh, hard to deal with, unkind, no grace, crooked. But in both cases, Peter says, whether they're good and gentle or or scolios, what are you to be as a worker in that context? Well, you are to be respectful. And you are to be submissive. It doesn't matter. Here's where we, as a devoted follower of Jesus, really have to throw ourselves on the Holy Spirit and rely on Him to give us unnatural responses to that harsh, hard, crooked boss. We must trust that the Holy Spirit will work out the transforming character of Jesus in us and enable us to submit and be respectful even when everything in our old nature is saying, no, i got to fight back. No, we don't. Though the context is slightly different, our response is to be the same as Paul's when he says this in 1 Corinthians 4. Check this out. He says, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. And when we're cursed, we what? We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Yeah. Paul is saying, even when it's really hard, we remain respectful and submissive. That is the reach of vocational evangelism. When it's really hard, we respect and we submit. Now, does this mean, then, that we're supposed to be a doormat at our workplace year after year after year as a Christian and we never leave? We should never leave. What do you think? Is that what what this passage is saying to us? No, it it is not. 
Peter would not be saying that. Now, a slave in the first century had no choice. I mean, they're not going anywhere until they're sold or they're freed or they die. They're stuck. We do have a choice in our cultural context. So unless the Lord is clearly indicating to you that he wants you to stay in a really difficult work environment because he has purposes for you, evangelistic purposes for you that he wants, and you clearly believe that, you would have the freedom to work to move out of that, that work environment and into another work environment. But until that happens, until that day, you are the best, most respectful, submitting to the boss worker that you know how to be with God's help. You follow that? Until you're not in that place, you're the best worker you can be. That's vocational evangelism. Now, there is one exception to this submission in the workplace command, just as there was last week one exception to the submission to the government command. And that's when the boss or the company requires us to do something that God in his word clearly forbids us from doing. Would you agree with that? That's the one exception. In such a moment, we must repeat the words that Peter repeated. By Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Here's where as a Christian in the workplace, there is a clear difference between respecting authority and blind obedience to authority. There is a difference. The New Testament writer James lays it out plainly with the statement that he makes Inspired by the Spirit of God, James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is what? It's sin. So let's just paint a scenario. The company leadership calls you in, closes the door, and requires you to purposely misreport something and sign your name to it. What are you going to do, Christian? What are you going to do, Christian, in your company? What are you going to do? You're not going to sign it, right? You're not going to sign it. You have a choice. You must respectfully do what? Decline. You respectfully decline. You cannot submit. The Puritans used to say, if you have to choose between sin and suffering, always choose suffering, right? It's a great rule to live by. So these are the true testing moments for the Christian worker. This is where Christianity's counter to the world's values gets lived out for everybody to see. Our allegiance to God trumps this command to submit to, to human government or to the company or to the business if this is going to require us to compromise our faith or disobey the word. Every follower of Jesus in the workplace will do well, I believe, to process in advance what, what are you going to do should your boss come to you and order you to do something that the word of God clearly says you cannot do. What are you going to do? You want to have that thought already worked out. Will I submit or will I respectfully decline? It's a given that that will be a very difficult moment for you. Saying no could actually result in a demotion at the very least. Being fired for insubordination, in which case you'll be forfeiting a favorable referral as you try to go get a new job. You're not going to get it from your company. Whole careers can be derailed and a lifetime of income potential could be threatened by this decision when you know the right thing to do as a Christian in the workplace and you actually do it. It could cost you a lot. But for us Christians in the workplace, career advancement and financial success have never been the ultimate goal, have they? They cannot be the ultimate goal. And that brings us to the motive there on your note page. The motive for not only how we work, but why we work, the way we work. Verse 18, one more time. Servants, 
Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, what are the next three words? Mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you suffer and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Paul says in Ephesians and in Colossians, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. And not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, you are serving the Lord Christ. What's the motive for the Christian to be the very best employee that that they can be on their job, in their job. What's the motive? Hey, it's it's the glory of God, is it not? You're serving the king. According to Peter and, and to Paul, we're not really working for the company that employs us, right? That's not who we work for. We aren't submitting to an earthly boss over us. We are in the employ of the king of the universe, and Jesus is our boss. Now, how often do you think about that when you get in your car to go to work? Today, Jesus is my boss. We do our very best at work all of the time because we are mindful of God. That's our motive. We're mindful, we're conscious, we're aware. It's always on our thoughts that God is observing everything we do at work. He's the real boss. Or to say it another way, as Christians in the workplace, we get to have a take-God-to-work day every single day. That's how it ought to be for us, right? I'm taking my God to work with me. It's never far from our thinking as we drive to work each day. I'm going to work with and for the one who died for me. Wow. That is a great motive for going to work. He gave me this job, and I'm going to do the very best in it for him. For him. And he gave me this job so that I can represent him really well in this workplace. Not everyone will get to be where I am today, but I get to be there. God has placed me there. I get to represent him there in that place. I may be the only one that God has chosen to place in this company. The only one who knows Jesus. Verse 9 again said it so well, so that I can proclaim the excellencies, excellencies of him who called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How do you think about, and what do you think about when you go to work, brothers and sisters? Is this what you think? Is this how you go to work? This is so convicting. My motive for my work ethic is the Lord, his pleasure and a chance, no matter how slim, that as I work for him in the presence of others, my bosses and my co-workers that, that, know, that, that don't know him, some might, they just might ask about him because of the way I do my job. I get to proclaim Jesus by the way I work. Now, when the workplace is a pleasure to be in and the people are great and the boss is cool, man, that's awesome. We love that. The burden for any Christian worker is serving joyfully and faithfully and respectfully when the workplace is hard, when the boss is unjust, scolios, when the culture on the job is hard or immoral or anti-Christian. Peter says, in that place, the light shines brighter because it's darker. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Hey, 
Peter says. If you're a poor worker, you're a Christian, but you're a poor worker and you're disrespectful and you're lazy and you're unreliable and you show up to work late and you're not a team player and you get written up and you get disciplined or you get fired, don't come crying to God and tell him how unfair everybody at work has been to you. You're getting exactly what you deserved. You're not a good worker. You're not representing your, your, your boss, Jesus, very well at all. But, verse 20, if when you do good, you work the very best you know how, and you suffer for it, and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This finds favor with God. This pleases him. It pleases him because this is where Christianity's counter to the world's values gets lived out and everybody sees it when we suffer for trying to do it right. And who could serve as a more powerful example for us today than Jesus himself of what it looks like to work and work like this? And that's where Peter goes in verse 21. When we determine to be the very best workers that we can be, we do what is right and we serve and suffer anyway, man, we are in good company because we're in the company of Jesus. Verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So if you'll allow me for just a moment to to carry the vocation motif forward and actually apply it to Jesus, just track with me here for one moment. We could say that, that Jesus put on flesh and he entered our world and he came here and he worked in a company called the Company of Mankind. So can you picture that? A big sign, the Company of Mankind. And Jesus came. To work here. Did he see things with the management that were not good? Yep, he did. Did he have helpful suggestions to improve the work environment that were ignored by management? Yep, sure did. What about his salary? Uh, that's exactly right. He didn't get a salary, did he? <laughs> and, and why did the company of mankind hate him so much? Was it because of job performance? No. Was he lazy? No. Did he lack the skills to do the job? No. What cause did Jesus give the company of mankind to treat him the way that they did? All he ever wanted was to see the company prosper and the people's lives improved. And yet the company hates him, beats him, flogs him, despises him, and ultimately crucifies and kills him. That's what the company does. Jesus dies on a cross, and in doing so, he pays a sin debt that the company of mankind owes to God and could never pay back. Jesus pays the company's debt with his own life. And he did this because God asked him to. And he's ever obedient to God's will. For the very company that he created, loved, served, taught, fed, healed, for that company to turn on him and to kill him, why, that is the greatest of all injustices, is it not? That is, that is the greatest crime of all time, is it not? Management fires Jesus. God hires him back by raising him from the dead. And God promotes him to the seat of CEO over the company of mankind, giving him a title that is above every name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church family, this can only mean that in the eyes of God, willing, submissive, respectful service 
even to evil, cruel, and unjust authority that might be over us, when done for God's sake, when being mindful of God, when done to proclaim his excellencies, well, that is a glorious thing. That is a glorious thing. It is a gracious thing, Peter says. When we do this, being mindful of God. So Jesus is our example of the perfect workman. So when your boss or your fellow employees, they, they, they demean you or mistreat you or overlook you or disrespect you, but you do the very best you can for them anyway, remember, you are following Jesus' example and you are doing vocational evangelism. So, dear church, let's make sure that we take God to work with us every single day that we work. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, what a, what a gift you've given to us today, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your words so much, so, so, so relevant, so on point. It's, it's where we live and it's what we struggle with, and you have met us here today. You've told us how, how to do it. But more than that, you've even equipped us to be able to do this, to, to, to be the very best workers and in our places of employment. And how we thank you for our jobs today. We recognize that everything we have comes from you. And so when we go to work tomorrow, Lord, may we, may we be taking you with us and be very mindful of that. May the people of Idlewild Bible Church have a reputation for being the very best workers on the mountain. Not so that we can take some kind of credit for that, but so that all glory would go to you and perhaps some would want to know about Jesus because of the way we worked. We'll say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.